podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it's Steve Bloomers Washing. It's the international break, and you know what that means. We've got a one-off podcast filled a Derby County-shaped hole in all of your lives. Uh, so in this episode, we've had the absolute pleasure of meeting a commentating icon who almost needs no introduction, really, but we are going to give him one anyway. John Motson is a broadcasting institution, one of Britain's best-known and most-loved commentators who spent 50 years at the BBC and is synonymous with English football. Um, now, Richard and Tom, I looked up some of Marty's best lines. There's some absolute humdingers from, from over the years unsurprisingly from a career the last five decades um, Coach what's your favourite Motty moment? Well I think for most of us I think uh, they've got to be kind of England moments and the one that really stands out for me is the is the 5-1 win in Germany Owen Hattrick and John Watson's line is getting better and better and better I think um, I was at a family party that night watching it with all, with all the family obviously and I think we're all doing Jürgen Klinsmann dives on the floor as the, the goals went in one after the other and Watson just um Encapsulated that those moments perfectly for me. Um, same sort of era, same same period. England uh, then screwed up that World Cup qualifying campaign and needed a, a victory against Greece and were trailing with uh, less than two minutes to go in stoppage time. And it was just a draw we needed, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and up stepped David Beckham with the uh, with the free kick, and it's Motti like screaming Beckham like really loud as their entire place goes mental. Uh, and the two two draw sent England to the to the World Cup in two thousand and two. So uh, yeah, he's got a big connection with Derby County as well. He was the voice of some of the club's biggest, most memorable and historic moments over the years. So Motti was the commentator when Derby played Leeds in 1975, for example, and uh, Franny Lee and Norman Hunter had a big fight on the pitch back when Derby and Leeds were basically like the the Man City and Liverpool of their of, of their day. A few funnier ones as well. I mean, you don't want to pull them up in these sort of things too much because every commentator does them, don't they? But there's ones like Middlesbrough withdrawing Macaroni, the Italian, Nemeth, the Slovakian, and Stockdale, the right back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's ones like, um, I think you told us, Tom, that there's one where he says, um, for those watching this Spurs match in black and white, Tottenham were in yellow. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned then that um, he was taking the mick out of a, a snooker commentator. I think had done it before. Who but, said that first? Yeah, but yeah. Classic, classic Motti that one. And I do honestly think, for all of us, Euro '96 was like the tournament as, yeah. as children, wasn't it? We were all like just before we we were teenagers, and I always think when I see that Gascoigne goal against Scotland, when is it Steve McManaman who just pops it forward? Yeah, and Gazza's um, Gazza gets in behind Colin Hendry. The left foot flick over the top, and Motti's like, uh, "Oh, brilliant! Oh, yes!" <laughs> and then he buries it, but buries it right footed past Andy Gorham. It's just an absolutely iconic piece of commentary, isn't it? So that's all well and good. We know that Motti is synonymous with England and the Premier League and English football. He's covered ten World Cups, ten European Championships, twenty nine FA Cup finals, and more than two hundred England games. But he has got a family connection to Derby County believe it or not because Motti's son Fred is a lifelong Derby County fan believe it or not so we met father and son from the Motson family to talk about their connection to the Rams and everything else in between Brian Clough Derby's glory years in the 70s the baseball ground and so much more and here's what Motti said Powell again there's Villains Asanovic and Daly 
John, so much to ask you about. I'm going to struggle to do justice to your uh, to your career in one podcast, really. But I guess the best place to start is at the beginning. You're a household name as a broadcaster, of course, but it was actually uh, local newspapers where you cut your teeth in journalism. Yes, I joined the Barnet Press in the 60s, did four years apprenticeship there, uh, went on to the Sheffield Morning Telegraph, where I was lucky enough to get into local radio while I was still working on the paper, did some work for Radio Sheffield. Uh, that led to a job in what was then... The old rate, well, it was Radio 2, but a different Radio 2 to the way it is now because that's where the sport was then. Uh, Five Live hadn't even been dreamt about at that stage. Um, and Radio 2 trained me as a broadcaster. I started off reading the racing results, um, doing a little bit of presentation of uh, radio programmes. And then in 1969, when Derby County first came into the conversation, they sent me out to do my first uh, BBC Radio live commentary which was Everton versus Derby at Goodison Park, a uh, cold December day. Uh, Derby lost 1-0, Alan Ball scored the goal for Everton, and that was really the beginning of my commentating career. I did another handful of games for radio in the next two seasons, and then in uh, 1971, um, the legendary Kenneth Wollstoneholm left the BBC. They were looking for a new young commentator to come in alongside Barry Davis and David Coleman, um, I was given a trial commentary. They thought it was OK. Um, they gave me a year's uh, attachment, as the BBC used to call it. If I hadn't made out as a television commentator, I'd have gone back to radio. But fortunately for me, I tumbled across the now iconic uh, Hereford versus Newcastle FA Cup tie in February 1972. That turned out to be one of the matches of not just that season, but one of the great FA Cup giant killings. Uh, and I think that helped me to get a permanent contract, which I got at the end of the 71-72 season. Radford again. Oh, what a goal! What a goal! Radford, the scorer. Ronnie Radford. I then stayed with Match of the Day until May 2018, so it was 47 years. Back then, when you were working in, in local papers and that sort of thing, was, was TV and broadcast always the long-term aim, or did you... You know, did you just want to sort of cover football in well, any I, form? I was more I was more concerned about covering football as a newspaper man. To be honest, um, I had thought at the back of my mind that it might be great one day to be a, a broadcaster, but it, it didn't certainly come into my mind when I went to Sheffield as a writer and as a sub editor. It didn't occur to me that I would get into broadcasting so quickly. So yes, uh, I suppose there was a an inkling at the back of my mind that it would be nice one day, but it happened a lot quicker than I thought. More than two and a half thousand games in the gantry. We're not quite sure how many no, exactly. No, it's difficult to um, what were the what were the biggest lessons you learned during your career about the art of commentating? Did your uh, did did it did your style change much over the years? Would you say? Well, people say my voice hasn't changed um, because I had a replay on TalkSport the other day of a, of a goal I commentated on in 1972, and they remarked on the fact that I sounded very much the same. But, I mean, you must remember that I worked first in radio and then in television, and the two um, styles, if you like, or uh, of commentary are completely different. I mean, in radio, I was taught to give the score every two minutes, to remember that nobody could see a picture. In other words, I had to paint that really as to which way the teams were kicking and everything, uh, giving the time on a regular basis for people who were switching on and off. And basically, radio commentary was straight description. The big change for me came when I went to Match of the Day and 
they kicked off in my first television game and I thought, what do I say now? Because all the things I'd been doing in radio were suddenly redundant because people had a picture. So I had to change my style, if you like, or accommodate it to become, shall we say, more an identifier of players, which I think is the commentator's main role in television, over and above everything else, and also try to interpret things rather than just describe them from a sort of standing start, in a way. So, yeah, more selective, I guess, is the word I'm looking for as a, as a television commentator, um, using what knowledge I had to try and interpret the game, try and perhaps uh, tell people what was going on off the ball, for example. I mean, as a television commentator, you saw things which weren't immediately in shot. So a completely different concept, to be perfectly honest. Um, and that's gradually what I came to hopefully do relatively well. Um, it wasn't an easy transition. I, I found myself saying too much at times. I found myself stating the obvious at times. But by and large, um, I think that the, the voice was obviously going to stand me in good stead, whether it was radio or television. But the actual style and the way I put it across um, needed an awful lot of attention at the time. Now, the early part of your career coincided with the greatest era in Derby County's history, Champions of England in 1972 mm. and 1975. For those of a younger generation who didn't live through those mm. times, myself included, can you remember what made those Derby sides so special on the pitch? Well, Brian Clough to start with. I mean, <laughs> there was no doubt about that. I mean, I first interviewed Cluffy when I was in radio and when Derby were in the second division. Um, and then when they got into the first division, of course, match of the day was there nearly every other week at the baseball ground or away. Um, and meeting Brian Clough and certainly Peter Taylor as well was a great experience. And I have to say, looking back, although Brian could be, as we all know, very abrasive and confrontational at times, he helped me an awful lot, particularly in my early days when I was very nervous and uh, apprehensive about going to interview people like him and Bill Shankly and Don Revy. Um, but I remember very, very clearly the little office at the baseball ground where I used to occasionally get invited in for a cup of tea with, with Clough and Taylor. Um, and of course, the, the, yes, I mean, the, the, the championship. Um, and then, still in that era, Dave Mackay took over and Derby won the league again. And I was there quite often in his time. And I got really a, bit, a little bit caught up with Derby because my father, the Reverend William Motson, who really takes all the credit for my love of football because he took me to so many games uh, in so many different places. He was a Derby County fan and little did I know it, but actually as a young baby, uh, I connected with Derby County because when Derby got to the FA Cup final in 1946, the first one after the war, my father couldn't get a ticket. So he listened to the match on the radio while he was pushing me in my pram. And of course, Derby beat Charlton 4-1 and my dad must have been delighted that they'd won the FA Cup. Um, and from then on, until I grew up enough to go to games, he, he encouraged my love of football and scrapbooks and collecting programmes all followed on. Um, so there's always been Derby County in the family and obviously up to the present day when Fred, my son, um, is a season ticket holder and has been for some years. So yeah, I just wanted to ask you about you know, the catalyst for, for Derby's success back then, clearly Derby's greatest ever manager, Brian Clough and Peter Taylor, as you've said, and you've interviewed him so many times yourself. What was your first impression of him when you first met him? Well, just how direct he was and, and how de confident he was in himself and how they assembled a team that 
um, I suppose you'd call it 4-3-3 now with Hector and O'Hare and Hinton up front. And then, of course, the other thing was their, their real skill in the transfer market. I mean, to go out and buy Roy McFarlane from Tranmere Rovers, to get Colin Todd. Um, Derby was a team that you could almost pick the team every week with Cluffy because he was so certain of himself in the way that they were going to play and the personnel just followed on. And they had this ability as well. To, to, they were fearless, really. I mean, going to Old Trafford, or which in those days, of course, could have been daunting for a team just promoted, uh, didn't didn't phase Clough and Taylor at all. And they transmitted that confidence to the team. Um, and so Derby then just went straight through into the first division, fearing nobody, and made themselves champions in a very short space of time. How did... That derby team that you that you watched in the early seventies compare to some of the you know the best club sides that you saw in your career. Well, it's very difficult because different eras are different, throw up different things. I think the the the, the strength of that derby team was the was the pattern of play, which never varied. I mean, Clough and Taylor used to love a wide man. Uh, it was Alan Hinton at Derby. Later on, it was John Robertson at Nottingham Forest. But they passed the ball um, in a very simple way. The key was keeping possession. Uh, pass it to the nearest white shirt and get it wide and then get a cross in and it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't total football it wasn't terribly sophisticated compared to some of the formations that you see today but it was absolutely effective and bearing in mind they had to play on a very muddy pitch at the baseball ground the passing had to be good otherwise they would have been losing the ball every time they got it but they didn't they, they kept the pattern of play simple direct um, demanded absolute maximum output uh, and effort from every player. I mean, they wouldn't stand for shirkers, Clough and Taylor. And of course, they they knew enough about the game. The tactics were sort of uh, ingrained, really, uh, irrespective of who they played. And um, getting the team right, getting the players in that they wanted, um, that was the key to it, really. And, and from then on, the club went from strength to strength. It's really interesting. You've said that they, they had that style that was really ingrained in the team and that they basically didn't really change for anyone, which no. uh, I feel like you wouldn't necessarily get away with that in the modern game. Is maybe maybe not, maybe not. You know, I, I don't know how much they actually bothered about the opposition in some ways. They knew the way they were going to play. I'm sure there were occasions when they made provision for playing against certain teams and certain players. Uh, but I never got the feeling that Derby were overawed by anything or anybody. Um, and of course, there was that wonderful moment in 72 when they clinched the league because Derby weren't playing at the time. It was all to, all to do with what Liverpool did and all the rest of it. And they were uh, on the beach on holiday. They, they? Were, they were in the Silly Isles and Brian Clough did a live sports <coughs> night interview with Bob, with Bob Wilson. But um, they were in the Silly Isles when the championship was actually won. And that's no great surprise because the other thing about Clough and Taylor that you have to remember is they were very keen on getting the players away from it all and going on mid-season breaks, uh, not as well more than clubs could now, believe it or not. They were almost <laughs> two or three times a season. He'd whisk them off to Mallorca for two or three days and they had their favourite hotel and all that. And, it, and the method there was to keep the players fresh. And I think that was a key in the way Derby played because you never thought they were jaded or they played too much football. They always came out on the front foot. And I think that was psychology. I think Clough 
was well, he was like that himself actually, because he would go away for two or three days, and nobody seemed to mind, and he'd reappear on the Friday. I mean, it was a very um, untypical type of management actually. He, he wasn't the kind of guy that would be, you know, in their necks five days a week or anything like that. I mean, sometimes the training was very straightforward. He would take them for a, a walk by the, through the park, or the, they would just do a very short sharp burst of practicing corners and then then the session would end and he'd say I'll see you Friday I mean unorthodox is a word that fits perfectly in the way that Clough managed but I think Peter Taylor hasn't been given quite the credit historically that he should have been because people often wondered how they divided up the responsibilities and it was kept a little bit of a closed secret uh, in the baseball ground days but I think what happened was Clough was the great motivator and Peter Taylor was the great spotter of players. Um, there were lots of examples of that. Taylor uh, would target somebody. He went to Long Eaton to see Gary Bertles um, and walked out after three minutes because Bertles had done two things that made him think, yes, he'll do for us. And it was Taylor whose research, I think, brought in the Archie Gemmels. They always wanted Peter Shilton. I know that even when Colin Bolton was in goal. Dave Mackay, I mean... Having won the double at Spurs, I mean, I know he was in his 30s, but he was a gigantic figure in, in uh, Scotsman, of course, but in English football at that time. Um, he was a huge influence on everybody he played with and, and feared by everybody he played against. And Derby knew that with him as the central figure, they had a team that could cope with what was, what was to come in the first division. Now, Derby also contributed to some of the more bizarre incidents you had to commentate on in your career, including an unforgettable moment in the history of the baseball ground against Man City yeah. in 1977. Well, yes, of course, Cluffy was well gone by then. He was he was away at Nottingham Forest, but uh, I think Colin Murphy might have been in charge or maybe even edging into the Tommy Doherty era. But anyway, Derby played Manchester... Derby were in trouble, by the way, when this happened. They were in danger post Clough, post Mackay, they were in danger of going back to the second division and they had a vital game at the baseball ground quite late in the season against um, Manchester City. And Derby had to win this game, really, and the pitch was dreadful, as it often was at the baseball ground. And anyway, Derby got off to quite a good start, and when they were a goal or two up, they were awarded a penalty. But the pitch was so muddy and that you couldn't decipher... Uh, the white markings and the the referee couldn't find the penalty spot um, and everybody stopped and thought what's going to happen next and the referee um, paced out the 12 yards from the goal line to where he thought the penalty spot should be and the groundsman at Derby then was a fellow called Bob Smith and Bob came around the pitch with a pot of paint uh, and a brush never forgotten it and he, ra he came round the touch line and round the goal line and stepped onto the pitch and he marched up to the 12-yard mark and he repainted the penalty spot while all the players on both teams just stood and watched. And this took two or three minutes. And it, it, people were laughing, but they, weren't, they were also a little bit wound up because they thought, well, are Derby ever finally going to take this penalty? And in the end, it was Jerry Daly, the Irishman, who stepped forward and he slotted it past Joe Corrigan. And that was the goal that really ensured that, Dar I think, Derby won 4-0 in the end that day. And they were very important points in the fight against relegation. But that was probably one of the most bizarre things I ever saw in my commentating career.
I can't see that happening in a Premier League game this uh, this season. Well, of course, you've got, you've got to remember one of the big differences now. Are the pit, the pitches now are like carpets, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, they're like snooker tables. I mean, then, and the baseball ground being the prime example, by about November, December, all the grass had gone and the rain had come down and it was it, it was a mud heap, really, to, in, in all honesty, if the truth is told. And that's why, as I said, Derby's passing game was had to be so precise because to play on that kind of surface, you had to be very sure of your touch. Um, and that's why they, they basically bought players who, who could control the ball very, very well at close quarters. And, and certainly that's one of the thing, factors that enabled Derby to, to enjoy the success they did. And what were the facilities like for yourself at the baseball ground as a commentator? Well, not not quite as palatial. Well, I say palatial. They're not palatial now, really, but not quite as uh, but a bit more primitive. Dare I say? I mean, <laughs> the, they built the television gantry under the lay stand roof, and that was all right. You were quite close to the pitch. You got the atmosphere. That was terrific. Uh, it wasn't so easy walking round the ground to get into the position. I remember that you had to walk r- almost round the outside of the ground to get w- to where you were commentating from. Uh, the crowds were different then, of course. There was no all-seater sta- stadiums. Um, the, the crowd would get in early and there would be a lot of banter and a lot of shouting and a lot of swaying on the on the standing areas. And, of course, the other thing about the baseball ground was it was so tight and there was no room for anything. I mean, the players were almost underneath your nose and the, the, the managers sitting in their little seats either side of the tunnel were so close to the pitch they were almost playing. Um, so it was. I think that atmosphere helped Derby. Actually, it was. It was so um, sort of. I don't know. Over, um, well, overseas teams. Yes, when the Real Madrids came and everything, they noticed it. Of course, it was totally different <clears> for them. But it was totally different for most first division clubs because there was no space other than on the pitch. There was no space between the touchline and the supporters, and it was just a really vibrant atmosphere. And I'm sure Derby majored on that, and 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 they capitalised on having that uh, environment in which they could play their football and 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 they could kind of dominate the opposition who, who hadn't got the, the nice wide open spaces that some of the grounds offer you today. It's Bobby Davison for Derby. It's a goal. He's marked his return with his 19th goal of the season. Just going back to, to Brian Clough and those interviews, he was just one of countless big names in sport that you interviewed in your career. So Alf Ramsey... Sir Alex Ferguson, just to name a couple. You even had Muhammad Ali as your co-commentator yes, yes, when you dabbled in boxing. I did. But what but, I um, wanted to ask you was, you know, were there ever any figures that sort of left you starstruck or, or lost for words? Well, I mean, well, I come back to Brian Clough again. I mean, when you went and interviewed him, or any of them for that matter, you were a little bit apprehensive because you didn't want them to bite back at you if you asked a silly question. Um, and, and you had to be careful that, and remind yourself that you were a professional reporter and that any nervousness that may have lied, laid underneath, you had to put that to one side and try and conduct the interview as, as professionally as you could. So I learned quite a lot talking to these guys. I mean, I remember going up to Scotland and interviewing Jock Steen. And the Cluffy one was interesting because I think the first time I interviewed Brian Clough for television, and I remember saying to one of my producers... Uh, the first time I went to to see Cluffy, I said, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm I'm really concerned about this. What what do you think I ought to ask him?" And the producer said, "Well, look, just get him to read the telephone directory. It's Brian Clough. They'll still listen." <laughs> and that really summed it up. 
So arguably your best known quality over the years as a commentator has been your attention to detail. So I just wanted to ask you about your preparation for games. Um, so I interviewed uh, Jeff Stelling for a university newspaper a few years ago myself, and he always said that he used to go to the same service station before Soccer Saturday to put all, to, all his stats together. Do you have like a special pre-match routine for doing your research? Or? Well, I mean, every commentator does his research. I mean, there's no great secret about this. I would sit down on a Thursday and Friday and I would make a list of the players and denote something about them in a little column alongside. I had a, a board which I used to do the two teams on in different colours, a method which I still use today in spite of all the modern technology. And then I would put sequences and facts about the two clubs on the back and the idea of that was, if, because it was a two-sided board, um, it wouldn't blow away if the, if, if the inclement weather came along. Um, so that was my solid background. Um, that kind of research is something that every commentator would do in their own way before any game. But the point about it was, by writing it down, say on the Friday, certain things stuck in your mind. So on the day of the match, you didn't really want to have to take your eyes off the pitch too often and look down to check something. It was always there as a backup. But yes, it was um, a, a, it was a, a weekly routine which I followed season in, season out. It never let me down. If, it was a, if I did make a mistake, it wasn't the fault of my homework, I hope. It was probably something on the spur of the moment. Uh, and sometimes I kept those boards for, and people often used to write in and ask me for a, a charity item or something for an auction. And I used to send off one of my commentary cards, as I called them. And even today, when I'm doing the occasional commentary for talk sport, I'm still using the same method. So just before we end this part of the, uh, of, of the chat, we always ask our guests a few quick-fire questions about, um, about their time in the game. Um, so for yourself, John, what's the most memorable match you commentated on involving Derby County? Oh, it's a tricky one. I think it was probably, um, looking back to my first season, uh, when Malcolm Allison was flying high with Manchester City, and they came to the baseball ground for a top-of-the-table game, and Derby sailed into a 3-0 lead in about half an hour. But they were 3-0 up in no time at all. City got one goal back, as I recall, and I remember Malcolm Allison coming into the little press room at Derby, which was very small and packed with journalists who were all following Derby County at the time. Um, and Malcolm Allison stormed in and he, he had a go at me about my, the match report I'd just done for Grandstand because I'd said how well Derby played and how they'd outclassed Manchester City and he wasn't very happy. But yes, it was a great day that. There were many like it, mind you. I mean, I mean the, the home games at Derby those seas early seasons, I mean, there were fives against Tottenham and Arsenal and things like that. And the crowd were just absolutely enraptured by it, really. Um, I continued to do quite a lot of Derby games. I remember Bruce Rioch playing for Derby and, and scoring a couple of terrific goals. Charlie George, of course, came along and there were the European games and things like that. So by and large, yeah, it's hard to pick one out, but I'll always remember that day when, they, when in my opinion, they outclassed Manchester City, who then themselves were winning trophies. On that theme, who's the best player you ever saw play for Derby? Ooh, well, I suppose you'd have to look very hard to look past Dave Mackay in those early years. Uh, well, where do you, where do you start? Where, I've, I've always had a great respect for Archie Gemmell. I think he linked the team tremendously well with those long runs through midfield in those early years. Uh, Alan Hinton, because his service from the wing and his crossing was so pinpoint. You can't leave out Kevin Hector because of his goals record. 
and every time Derby needed a goal, it was Kevin Hector that normally cropped up with it. So yes, all those, all those, and of course the captain Roy McFarland, who who was absolutely pivotal and central to what they achieved because he he was the one that lifted the trophy. So I mean, yeah, great names, all of them. Looking into your uh, your England games now. More than 200 games, clearly a difficult one to uh, to pick perhaps. What was your favourite England memory from oh, your commentary? Without doubt when we won 5-1 in Germany, um, when Sven Joran Eriksson had just taken over. That was a, a, in Munich. <coughs> um, at that time, of course, the Germans, they were our sort of, um, well, I suppose you'd say our, our, our hoodoo team, if you like. Although we'd beaten them in the World Cup final, it was, it was of course, defeat against Germany in the in the quarter-final in Mexico, and then of course um, in 1990, um, the, the, the semi-final in Turin, which um, we lost on penalties. So when we played Germany, you always thought, oh, here we go again, they're going to beat us. They beat us, of course, in the last game at we- ever played at the old Wembley, for example. But then when we went to Munich, Sven had sort of put a new um, style, if you like, on the England team. It was our first overseas manager. And that night, Michael Owen just hit such a high note with his hat-trick and uh, Stephen Gerrard of course was a scorer and so was Emil Heskey in fact all the scorers were Liverpool players at the time but that was an amazing night the Germans hadn't been beaten like that on their own turf for a very long time and nobody saw it coming and uh, it was a wonderful night to be English actually and to be in the commentary box uh, covering one of the most successful if not the most successful match that England played certainly away from home in that whole period and Sven later repeated one of your commentary lines back to you after that game a certain time time after didn't he he said it's getting better and better and better because (laughs) uh, Michael Owen scored his third goal and that's what I said and Ericsson crept up to me and whispered it in my ear at a match a few weeks later (laughs) when he'd watched the video but it was that sort of night it did get better and better and better for England Sadly, well, I say sadly, we did go on to the World Cup finals, although ironically in 2002 in Japan, when we got to the quarter-final and we, we lost to Brazil, so um, it, it, it wasn't quite the new beginning or the new dawn uh, that we thought it was going to be under Sven. We got to quarter-finals, but no further. Well, of course, bringing the story up to date, Gareth Southgate has already gone past that <laughs> by getting to a semi-final. So, um, you know... It, Time's moved on, but uh, I, I really, although England were disappointing at the end sometimes, and it, 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 a lot of hurt really for a commentator as well as for the England fans because we got close, but we didn't get close enough. The golden generation, as it was called, didn't aspire quite to what they should have done. Although you look at incidents that happened, Michael Owen's injury against Sweden, when that, when that team looked as if they could win the World Cup in 2006, Wayne Rooney's injury... Wayne Rooney being sent off. Um, All sorts of things conspired against England at that time. Uh, But we can't deny it. We weren't quite good enough to get to a final. Just finally, what's the best atmosphere in any game you've ever commentated on? Oh, atmosphere. Well, I've already talked about the unique atmosphere of a packed baseball ground. But I'd have to say on the larger scale, uh, going to the World Cup in Mexico and going to the Azteca Stadium, 115,000 people at the World Cup. Um, in, in, in that year 
big games at the big grounds, really. That, that's what comes back to me, commentating in, if you like, in the Bernabeu in Spain or even here, you know, the ma- when the big derby matches happened, um, you know, your Arsenal v Tottenham's, your Everton v Liverpool's, your Manchester derbies, that's when the atmosphere was really crackling. And actually, I think that's one thing I ought to add because commentators tend to bounce off the atmosphere in the in the ground when they're talking and it was much easier to do a, a game with an exciting backcloth like that than it was to try and bring to life a nil-nil draw before a very quiet crowd. Now Steve Bloomer's Washing is partnered for the season with Derby Brewing Company, the family-run micro-pub operator in Derby with three venues across the city. And don't forget to give us a follow on social or on Facebook Instagram and Twitter at Steve Bloomer Pod, and there'll be more from John Motson and his son Fred in just a second. Hi, I'm Dean Sturridge. Hi, I'm Paul Pesky Solidor. Hi, I'm Curtis Davis, and you're listening to Steve Bloomer's Washing. So let's fast forward to the present day then. You retired at the end of last season, John, from after 50 years with the BBC, but then a couple of months later, you're now back behind the mic with TalkSport. Yes, I'm doing some work for TalkSport now, um, perhaps not quite as intense as the work I did at the BBC. I go into TalkSport studio on a Friday to preview the Premier League weekend, and then I go back on a Monday and I look back on the weekend, the way it's materialised, and then once a month, I'm I'm back in the commentary seat. So yes, it's been a very, very, very sort of satisfying way of continuing my broadcasting career. And I have to ask you about the summer. You covered ten World Cups yourself. Did you miss being a part of it in Russia, part of the setup? Um, no, I didn't miss it. I mean, I'd done, <laughs> I'd been to 10, 10 World Cups altogether, so I think that was quite a good innings. Um, I was watching it just like a fan, I guess, hoping that watch some of the games with Fred and following England and wondering if they were finally going to get to a World Cup final. Um, so no, I, I, I got a great pleasure out of just uh, not having to do all the homework and preparation, which when you were going to cover a World Cup, you were virtually working on it all season because there were so many teams and so many players to, 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 to do homework and research on. So it, it was a relief in many ways. So I was hoping you could clear up the, uh, the football allegiances in the Motson family for us. Your father himself was a Derby County fan and you're, uh, you're a Barnet fan, is that right? Presumably from your local... Well, I, you say fan, I mean, I, I don't want to call myself a, a fan in the sense that I go every week, but yes, I developed a, an, effect, an affection for Barnet because that's where my career kicked in in 1963. I don't see Barnet play that often now, but I always make a point of going down there two or three times a season. And we can uh, bring in your son at this point. Thanks for talking to us, Fred. It's great to have you with us. Um, no problem. How did you come to be a, a lifelong Ram? Uh, well, it's this this sort of become part of family legend, really, this story about the Benzel case. Um, that, that Dad will tell you that when he used to cover matches, which still still today, even back in the 80s, uh, there, was, there was plenty of sponsorship in the game. Uh, and often he'd sort of be stopped in the tunnel or on his way to the, the gantry by a sponsor handing out sort of promotional items of one one type or another. And it happened that one game at the baseball ground, uh, East Midlands Electricity, who were then involved with the club, uh, gave Dad some Derby memorabilia, including this famous pencil case. Um, Dad said, oh, well, I've just had a, a son, so yeah, I'll take that home got put in my nursery and uh, yeah the uh, the story is that essentially when I learned to speak one of the first things my dad asked me was who do you support and I replied Derby County. There you go. 
I take it you used to go to matches together. I mean, would you ever see Dad at work on a match day? Like, how, how would that work? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously we've spent less years in the Premier League during my life than than I would like. So it's not been that many times Dad's been covering Derby regularly while while I've been going as a fan. But no, I mean, it's. I remember a few times. I remember a game at at Highbury when Rory Delap managed to miss from about half a yard out um, that Dad covered and. I remember seeing him walking around the pitch to his position before the game, which was a bit odd. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we've, we've been to plenty of games together um, as well. Uh, Dad's come, come to quite a few derby games just with me uh, over the years. Um, and, I mean, to, to, to me, it's not that strange sort of seeing him working at a match because that's what I know, really. And you have been on the gantry with me a few times. I have, yeah. Mm. It must be a bit surreal, though, at the same time, you know, watching your team's highlights whilst hearing your father's voice. Uh, describing them to to the nation. Uh, I mean, I suppose so. Although I think probably years of playing FIFA and and hearing his voice describing <laughs> the goals has uh, made me somewhat used to it. So, w- were you ever tempted to take up the commentating mantle yourself? Did that ever cross your mind? Not really. No, uh, I always wanted to do my own own thing. I mean, I've got a real interest in football, but uh, not so much on the journalism side. Although. Actually, in my in my role as an academic, I, I do get paid for talking for a living. So I guess I haven't haven't gone that far from the, <laughs> what my dad does. So public speaking of a sort has still uh, you know stayed in the in the Motson family. Yeah, yeah. From from my grandfather being a preacher right through, it seems as though we are we all like the sound of our own voices. Now we always ask our guests about the current Derby County setup. John, did you ever foresee Frank Frank Lampard going into management, and when you crossed paths with him during your career? Well, he was always one of the more intelligent footballers. I mean, he had O-levels and A-levels and went to public school. And quite apart from the fact that he was Chelsea's record goal scorer and won a fantastic number of caps, he was always going to be management material, I think. I didn't necessarily think it would automatically be at Derby. Fred will tell you more than me because he's seen the games this season, but it seems to me to be quite a good fit. I mean, I have to say, in the summer uh, when when Rowett left for Stoke, I was I was sort of talking about let's get in someone who's got more experience of the division. I, I remember having conversations with with friends about people like Smith at Brentford, who's now gone to to Villa. And at first, you know, there's always that fear: is this just a big name appointment? But no, I think so far so good. Really, as you say, cautiously optimistic. I think uh, I'd rather see us see us play attacking football and get the occasional tonking but at least actually enjoy going on a Saturday than some of what we've seen in the last few years and I think I think we've got to give Frank time and uh, hopefully he could be a real success for us. So I've asked John about his most memorable derby moments um, what are the ones that stick in your head from your from your lifetime? Uh, good question I mean I think probably right up there uh, just a few um, going sort of chronologically I remember beating United at Old Trafford when Wanchop scored the wonder goal. Uh, I wasn't at the game, I was too young to be going on my own, but I remember I was at school uh, playing in a five-a-side tournament and pretty much, even though I went to school in St Albans uh, down south, pretty much everyone was a Man United fan at school at the time. All day everyone was busy sort of winding me up, how many are United going to have beaten you by, are they going to have reached double figures, all the rest of it. So that was a particularly satisfying uh, a result to find out about, and then and then that amazing goal. Did you did you cover that game, John? Just oh yes, yeah. so I was commentating for match of the day, and curiously, on the Friday, Derby was staying at a hotel just outside Manchester, where there was a football pitch in the grounds, and Jim Smith conducted a training session late in the afternoon, and I watched it, and it wasn't just one shop. 
who was new because Mark Poon was going to make his debut yeah. in goal yeah. and they were practising things and Mark was a very intelligent guy actually but his English wasn't great that day and I remember Jim Smith just saying to him you tell us what you want and we'll do it on defending and all that and then there was a guy Fred another player from one shops. Oh, Salise. Ah, right. Basically yeah. signed to keep him company. Didn't quite have the yeah. same impression. No, <laughs> no, but he was there, and all three played against Manchester United. All three played, and it was it was a remarkable afternoon. Obviously, topped by by one shops goal. I remember. Um, I'm sure I've read John that you used to get the occasional t- confirmed team days in advance. Sometimes, did you ever get a, the nod on your derby team here or there? Or yeah, Jim Smith was particularly good because, of course, I'd known Jim for years from his Blackburn days, and he always gave me the team. And and to be fair, most of them were. Pre- George Burley was always very good. I must say about that. And Nigel, Nigel Clough, um, Ni- Nigel Clough did give me the team before a very important FA Cup tie, which I did. In in the evening, it might even have been against Forrest. And Billy Davis also gets a mention from me here because although he didn't have the most successful, he did in fact, of course, I was at Wembley when he got Derby back into the Premier League. And he, he was pretty cooperative as well. Were you at that one as well, Fred? Yeah, I think that would obviously be another highlight. I mean, <laughs> we'll forget what came after it. But... <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about it. <laughs> uh, obviously, um, only time I've seen us sort of win win at Wembley or win, win a major um, one-off game. Um, so that would that would definitely be up there. But I think probably favourite match for me would still be the 10-minute forest of games I've actually been to. We were literally just about making our way to the back of the stand when, when we went one down and had the sending off. So... I remember getting in there and sort of turning to my mate and saying, you know, I'm not sure we should have bothered walking up. We should just stay downstairs with a beer. But um, no, I mean, I think that was perhaps the best day out as a Derby fan I've had, at least in in recent memory. And um, going right up to the present day, you're actually involved with Derby yourself these days, aren't you, Fred, in in a capacity in one of the supporters clubs? Yeah, no, I'm uh, uh, this season I'm press and publicity officer for the, uh, the Derby County London Supporters Club. I've been a member of the London supporters branch for a number of years uh, and have always really taken advantage and, and enjoyed the benefits uh, of getting getting match tickets. Uh, they're really good at getting away away tickets, particularly for, for London and Southern Games. Uh, and I also travel up quite regularly with them from St Pancras for home matches. So I thought it was about time to uh, to give something back to them. So for any Rams fans in the South East or the London area interested in, in finding out more how can they uh, how can they go about doing that uh, best thing to do is to go onto Facebook search for um, Derby County Supporters Club uh, London Branch or uh, follow us on Twitter at Capital Rams uh, best ways to get in touch and uh, memberships only a fiver if you're interested and if you're in the southeast of England please do let us know uh, should also say for Rams fans elsewhere there are there are lots of good branches right around the country so always worth finding out uh, from the club website or or through asking around on Facebook or social media uh, sort of who your local branch are and how you can get involved and uh, the branch even have their own their own local of sorts and don't they it's in uh, near Waterloo we do yeah the stage door um, which frankly is getting more and more useful as more and more games get moved for Sky so I think we're going to have uh, we're hoping for maybe a record turnout there for for the Forest match coming up on that Monday evening because of course for most of us down south Monday evening's not the not not really a, a time you can get up and back on the train. So 
we're hoping to get a big big attendance there at the stage door. They had some uh, they had some technical problems with their red button earlier this season, but they've now fixed them. I can I'm pleased to confirm. They have, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so the days of everyone crowding around someone's mobile are gone. We we do have a proper TV in there. John, just finally, when you do finally decide to uh, to hang up the mic, have you got any sort of plans for, uh, for for retirement? Well, I think people asked me that when I left the BBC, and I'm still working it. Um, no, well, no, I think I'll always have a love of football. You know, we've got a nice uh, collection of memorabilia at home to remind us of all the great occasions that we've been at, um, and that's always going to run in the family. I hope, you know, as you know yourself, Chris. I mean. Uh, as a Derby fan, or Andy as a football fan, it never, it never. Once it's in your blood, it, you never lose it, do you? Absolutely. So I guess that's going to be the case, and um, I'm just hoping that, for Fred's sake, apart from anything else, that Lampard can get Derby up into the Premier League. It's a Premier League club, really. I mean, we both went on the day Pride Park was open, didn't we? We did, Fred? yeah. Yeah. By the Queen, no less. Well, John, if you ever, you know, if you ever at a loose end, come down the stage door. Well, well, uh, well yeah. I'm sure you won't be short of office. Well, I wish, I wish all Derby fans all the best. I think it's terrific that you, they're able to tune into your podcast on a weekly basis. Fortnightly. Fortnightly. I basis. wish I could do it weekly, but I don't have enough fair time. No, no, no. Well, it's very thorough and it's, <laughs> it's very worthwhile. And I and I congratulate you on it and wish you well with it. Thanks once again to both of you, John. Thanks for the memories. I guess is all I can really say. And uh, Fred, see you at Pride Park in the future. Absolutely.